So by now, I hope you've heard the good news. The latest edition of Mindful Landlord, so Mindful Landlord 2nd Edition, is out. And, you know, I wanted to just let you know why I wrote this book a little bit. And part of it is that I feel like there are some ideas in terms of how you optimize mental performance that really help people or they anyway they've helped me on my real estate journey and part of what i wanted to do with the book is to really share some of the methodology behind optimizing your mind to be successful in real estate and then of course a more down-to-earth approach of how to run rental property for profit and peace of mind not to fall into the trap of more doors more dollars more deals so if you want to check out the book, this is really the best thing and the closest way you can have to having Terry in your corner when you make your real estate decisions. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with Rob Beardsley. Did I get that right? That's right. So Rob, tell me a little bit about what you do before I get into some specifics. Sure. I, uh, with my business partner, co-founded Lone Star Capital uh, over four years ago, which is a multifamily owner operator. So we own workforce housing assets in Texas. We've actually, since inception, acquired over 300 million in property. And we do that with a value add strategy. So we buy the property with some upside where we're either increasing occupancy or raising rents through renovations in order to increase returns for our investors. Okay. And so like unpack that for me a little bit. Are you guys like private equity people? Are you like really syndicators? Like what exactly is your role in that mix? So our company is vertically integrated. So we, you know, we're here based in New York but we have our own management team based in Houston where the majority of our portfolio is. So we handle the operations down from the hiring and training of property personnel, such as leasing agents, property managers, maintenance staff. And then that goes all the way up to our asset management team here in New York. And, you know, we also handle the capital side of things. Like you mentioned, the private equity, we handle the raising of debt and equity. So we work with lender relationships and our investors, which we have a very diverse group of investors that range from individuals investing 50 to 100,000 all the way up to funds and private uh, you know private equity funds and family offices that are writing checks up to 15 million. Okay, wow. So, I mean, I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but you look rather young. So, tell me, how does this come together? Like what was your path? How did you end up in this position? How did you end up to do these deals that sound like they have, you know, a lot of zeros behind them? Yeah, so I was, you know, really had the good fortune of meeting my business partner early on, very young. I, while in college, I discovered this business model and joined the industry by participating on online forums and groups and in-person meetups and conferences. I joined a mentorship group, which is how I actually met my business partner. So I think I was actually 20 years old when I started the company, and wow. my, my business partner was 36. So he was a bit older, had more experience as far as the corporate world and business. And I was kind of young and hungry and willing to do anything to, to make it work. So it was a great team and it still is a great team. And, and we've grown the team a good amount now and are you know really in a good position to continue to grow. But uh, that, that's really you know the benefit of, of starting early. It's kind of this busting the myth of believing that you need a certain level of experience before you go out and do something entrepreneurial. 
I mean, cer certainly it can't hurt, but if you have your sights set on doing something entrepreneurial, you might as well just dive in and make the mistakes now rather than make the mistakes later. Sure. So, but like, like explain this to me a little bit. So you said you were young and hungry and willing to do anything. So what does this look like? You graduate from college, you start attending, I guess, like, you know, virtual events or in-person events. And then how long does it take before you do your first deal? Do you do like a small, like single family home or do you jump in right away into the private equity space? Like what did that transition look like? Yeah, this is where the story is a bit crazy because it didn't feel like it at the time. It felt like a slog and a, and a daily grind, but it really did happen very quickly from meeting my business partner to only about five months later, we closed on our first deal, which was a $16 million property. So wow. Pretty large deal for us back then, and it was really hard to do. We had to raise four and a half million dollars of equity, which was by far the hardest part of the deal. And it didn't make it any easier that it was our first deal. We didn't know what we were doing. We had a bunch of missing puzzle pieces to put together, all within a compressed timeline. So that was a big learning experience. And uh, from there, pulling that off, which again, it wasn't easy. We took a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. But once we got that first deal closed, it really gave us a ton of confidence to take the next step and, you know, pursue the next deal and, and, and really want to turn this into a real business. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, I feel like we're going to get to this now by uh, talking a little bit about your book. So, you know, the topic of, of your book is underwriting. So first of all, tell us exactly what does that mean? Like unpack what, who, who, who should buy this book and what exactly is it telling me how to do? Yeah, a little over two years ago, I wrote the book, The Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions. And it's a pretty niche topic. And what underwriting is, is it's the financial analysis of any investment. It doesn't have to be real estate, but it's all about the numbers. And I really am passionate about the numbers. I went to school for computer science. And so I approached the business from that numbers perspective, built my own underwriting model, and then learned the underwriting process just by being on the job and you know going through the motions of talking to investors brokers lenders everybody in the community and that developed my underwriting acumen and then i turned that into a book and the one of the biggest motivations for that was simply the fact that there was this big gap in the market there was clearly a need for something like this in the space for people who either were coming into the space or even you know more, I touch on even more advanced topics, but there's just a complete dearth of this sort of information out there, at least in a readily consumable form, like a, like a simple book. So I thought it'd be really great to, to do that and give that back to the market, which it has been super well received. And I think it is serving an awesome purpose. But so what exactly will I learn if I read your book? I, I admit uh, we booked this podcast too fast, so I didn't have a chance to check it out yet. But can you maybe give me like a top three of like, what would I learn if I read it that I might not already know. Sure. Yeah. I mean, depending on where, where you are at in your you know, real estate experience, uh, you know, step one is the book walks through our underwriting process, which means from start to finish, how to analyze a property, plug in the numbers, where to find the data and interpreting the data from a risk return standpoint and all that. So that's kind of one big topic of, of understanding of actually, okay, how do I take a deal break down the numbers and understand whether this is a good deal or not. Then step two, some of the later chapters in the book talk about partnership structures. And so it gets into how, how to understand and evaluate 
different partnership structures from the fees to the preferred return and the waterfall slash promote structure. So those are all nuances that are specific to private equity deals and how the you know profits are split amongst the operator of the deal, which would be mm -hmm. my company, and then the mm -hmm. investors who are the capital partners. So that's a big dynamic. And that's brings me to an interesting point, which is I wrote the book not for one specific audience, meaning I didn't write it just for people who want to actively invest in real estate and start their own investment company. And I also didn't write it just for passive investors who are looking to just park their money with uh, sponsors like myself. You know, the book really is a great tool for both. And I think mm -hmm. that was something that I wanted to address, which because I, I see too many passive investors mm -hmm. avoid underwriting or avoid drilling into the numbers because they just, I don't know, either don't want to think about it or don't feel like they have expertise to, which may be true. But I also think it doesn't take that much time and effort to develop a good understanding. And that's why my book, just about 120 pages, really can put someone in a much better position understanding the deals they're looking at. Yeah, I think that's a really, really awesome point. Cause like, you know, I do some syndication myself and I feel like a lot of the time, you know, people who kind of want to partner or park capital, you know, they don't either they don't want to be caught up with the day to day of things, or maybe they also just don't necessarily understand a hundred percent what they're getting them themselves into. And I think like for sure it's it's a confidence thing because they have to trust uh the person who's going to be managing the investment and really taking care of it. But like a little bit of better understanding will help them make more informed decisions. And I think you're right. I don't think there's anyone who like I, I haven't seen any resources that are really out there for the people who want to get in without being the person who wears the captain's hat. Right. Exactly. So that's hope hopefully I've helped and, and the, you know, the interesting thing is, is people don't think that passive investors would necessarily read this type of book and they're generally correct, but we do get a lot of people that reach out interested to invest with us after reading the book. Mm -hmm. And, and they, you know, they mentioned the book as, Hey, I read the book, thought it was really great. Would love to learn more about investing with you. So while I didn't necessarily directly write it for that purpose or that audience, it is absolutely has been a great way for us to build credibility and grow our network. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me uh, then a little bit more about your business model. So, you know, you mentioned very quickly kind of how you started off, but what exactly, like, what is the perfect deal for you? And then what is the perfect investor for you? So the perfect deal for us would be, I'd call it a $50 million multifamily deal. That's roughly 300 units located in either Dallas, uh, Fort Worth or Houston. And uh, let's say it was built in, in, you know, the nineties. So it's, it's old enough to be ready for a value add, but it's new enough to have good bones as far as, you know, the wiring, the plumbing, the roofs, the major infrastructure. So that would be, you know, pretty much the ideal deal for us. And then as far as the capital side of things, you know, I, like I mentioned before, we have a diverse range of investors. We don't just work with family offices or institutional investors, and we also don't just do syndication. So we don't have one perfect investor. That's tough, tough for me to say, but you know, I guess the one perfect investor would be kind of the, some of the family offices that we have that are more like partners than investors. They you know, are, are sophisticated enough to understand the complexities of a deal and can work through issues as they arise. You know, that's the issue. Everyone gets excited about getting into a deal, but then when problems come up, you know, you could have a you already have a headache on your hands and then you could have an even bigger headache if you have difficult investors. 
And then the other thing I'll add also is we've been tremendously successful with 1031 exchange investors. So people who are selling real estate uh, that they own and they're looking to defer the capital gains through a 1031 exchange, but they don't necessarily want to be active owners of real estate anymore. Mm-hmm. They can exchange out of their rental property or commercial building and they can take that equity and invest it into one of our managed investments. And so developing that strategy and providing that option to investors has been a huge win for us. We've raised over $30 million in the last year in 1031 exchange equity alone. So uh, that's something that is also becoming an ideal investor for us. Oh, if only we were in the US. <laughs> we're in Canada. And so there's really no way for us to get out of our capital gains here. <laughs> Terrible. Government's, government's got, our, got their hands in our pockets more than for you guys. <laughs> Um, I feel for you. That's tough. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell me, uh, it also sounds like you've been in Texas for a little bit longer than it's been popular. So tell me how that happened. No, that I wouldn't say that's true. I mean, definitely Texas has gotten hotter and hotter and hotter, but you know, we weren't early to the party by any means. Uh, maybe a touch early to Houston. And that's kind of what originally attracted us to Houston is we were looking around Texas and we saw the major markets as being very hot, but we felt that Houston presented a discount uh, relative to the other top growth markets in Texas. And the reasons for that are that Houston has uh, pronounced weather risk compared to the other markets uh, with the hurricanes and the flooding, and then also the energy exposure, right? The oil and gas industry being prominent there as well. So those are the the, the known risks and the reason why Houston is less institutionally owned than the other markets. And that's why Houston trades at a bit of a discount. So it, it works for us. And we think that we're able to capture that, that return premium while keeping risk under control by buying in the right submarkets and, you know, managing well and financing correctly. So that has been, you know, really the, the strategy and we originally got into Texas just because our, our mentor was in Texas. And honestly, it's a big market. So there's a lot of opportunity to look at. And it's also a place that's investable, which I, what I mean by that is it's easier to raise capital for deals in Texas than other places. It doesn't mean it's the best place, but I think it's really hard if you're, especially when you're starting out, you're trying to develop a strategy where you're investing into something that's contrarian because you're fighting being a new manager and you're trying to sell a story that doesn't resonate with investors, even if your deal is good, right? It's, it's so much more than numbers in this business. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're absolutely right with that. So tell me about COVID. How did that go for you guys? How did that go for you personally in your business? When, yeah, when COVID first hit, there was obviously a a ton of uncertainty. So we, we paused distributions we prepared for the worst. We had no idea what was going to happen. We really sat on our hands as far as acquisitions. So we can't. We had a couple of deals under contract, and we we dropped them unfortunately. And we didn't buy any deals after March of 2020, right throughout the rest of the year. So it was slow on the acquisition side. We really focused on the portfolio. Through all the stimulus and 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 you know rent relief and all that support, you know the pr- properties performed really well. We reinstated distributions, and then through all the, the monetary policy, fiscal policy, our you know, values went up uh, right, across the country. So all of a sudden, we would have been much better off buying those properties 
because there was a ton of appreciation to be had through cap rate compression. And then now inflation is positively impacting rent growth. So all in all, it's been positive. Uh, but no, you know, we certainly didn't think it was going to be positive. Yeah. But so that brings me then to this particular moment in time. You know, I think Canada is in its own specific place because we really didn't have a market adjustment the way you guys did in 2008. So like generally speaking, in international news, our real estate is like quite overvalued right now. But I imagine that in the US, you know, with interest rates rising, you guys are also facing a bit of a period of uncertainty. What do you see on the horizon and how are you guys managing it? Yeah, these these rate rises are causing some repricing to happen in the market. And in, in a private market like real estate, unlike the stock market, it obviously takes more time for prices to adjust. So we're seeing that unfold. And I think moving in the next six, maybe 12 months, I think prices are going to come down, at, I don't know, maybe another 10%. And I think they've, pro they've come down about 10% already. So I think from the, the peak, we're, you know, we're going to come down at 20%. And that'll present a pretty attractive buying opportunity in spite of the higher rates that we're experiencing. So you know, certainly the, the best time that you could have bought in recent memory was really the beginning of COVID because mm -hmm. rates dropped and then prices hadn't dropped yet. So, you know, you had prices that were, oh, let me, let me talk about prices in terms of cap rates, right? That makes the most sense. Pre cap rates were up here still, but then rates dropped. So now all of a sudden you had a nice positive spread between your cap rate and your interest rate. You could get good cash flow. You could get good leverage from, you know, permanent financing. And uh, then steadily, because of that reality, prices got bid up and up, which made cap rates come down and down and down. And then, you know, cap rates were really around 3%. So that started to make deals difficult to do. And then once interest rates started rising, now you've got negative leverage and it's been, it's been very challenging. So yeah, I think, I think we will have a better buying opportunity in about six to 12 months. So are you guys still doing deals now or are you uh, taking a break? Yeah, we still have deals going on. Uh, you know, it's, this is our business. This is how we have to operate. We always have to have deals going on. Uh, so I think we're making the best of it and we are finding good opportunities, you know, ways to add to our portfolio and, and integrate them to our management as well as really keep risk under control. So we've mm -hmm. you know, radically adjusted our, our debt to lower leverage and to, to take other precautionary measures so that, uh, you know, the downside is protected. I mean, cause all in all, even though prices are, in my opinion, going to go down in the near future. If you buy today and you look back, you know, you, you five years from now, you look back that today will be a good time to buy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's so funny. Uh, somebody asked me not long ago on a show, what advice would you give to your former self? And like the advice I would give my former self was like, don't buy three buildings by 10. <laughs> exactly. But that was like, you know, 15 years ago. And then with that kind of time horizon, you can, look back at something and, and, and see that. Right. But like when you're in a kind of a compressed time horizon, then obviously is right now the time to buy or should you wait six months? You know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. If you have the luxury of waiting, then, you know, you can't be, uh, well, I, I can't say you can't be faulted for waiting because we really don't know and prices can take off and then you're left behind. So it, it's, it's much harder than it sounds at the end of the day, right? Timing the market is something that people think they can do, but it's nearly impossible.
Yeah. Well, that's what I also heard someone make an interesting distinction between being a speculator and being an, an investor. And they say speculators try to time the market, whereas investors are in it for the long run. And that allows those like short term sort of speed bumps to be speed bumps. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, Rob, if I were to ask you, um, you know, to give maybe some piece of advice, because I think we've been like very specific about kind of the business side, but I assume that there's a whole like mindset and a whole other level of discipline that goes on behind the scenes to allow you to do what you do. Could you maybe give our listeners like one or two tips of how you're able to do everything you do? Sure. Well, I think it starts with uh, having a direction and, and being explicit with with your goals. If you want to, you know, the more clearly you define your end destination, the much easier it is to get there, even if you don't have the roadmap for it yet. So something that I've been doing for, for years is just writing my goals down almost daily and, you know, refining those goals and then figuring out projects and daily tasks that can put me closer and closer to those goals and just reflecting on them. And again, going back to that point of making sure that those goals are actually in alignment with the, the higher purpose or, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're shooting for. So that, that I think is, is a big one, number one. And then number two, it's just, uh, I hate to say it cause it's so cliche, but just thinking bigger because whatever you're doing is, is probably too small thinking, thinking bigger and then figuring out, okay, now how do I do that? And you likely mean, it likely means you're going to have to leverage partners and mentors employees, you know, whatever it is you, you need, you know, doing it yourself is, is not a winning strategy in my opinion. Yeah. So, I mean, you've alluded a couple of times to, you know, mentorship and coaching. Do you want to maybe just say a couple of words, like how, you know, let's say I want to seek out mentorship or I want to figure out how to do something bigger. How do I go about finding a mentor? Yeah. I think there's lots of informal mentors that are available to us in our lives. And the way to, to approach that is to not think of how you can necessarily give to them because it's very difficult to give to a mentor because they likely have they, they they likely don't need what you can give to them. So the only thing that you can really give to them is is energy and action and the satisfaction of watching you implement their advice. So if you have an informal mentorship relationship, you know, you can't take it for granted. You have to take action quickly, implement and that's what's going to to motivate them to keep on investing in you. Nobody wants to give you a book recommendation and then, you know, you check in however long later and they haven't read the book, right? It's so much more compelling if someone reads the book immediately and comes back to you and says, hey, I read the book. It was great. And, you know, they're going to be ready to give you more. So I think that is how you handle the informal stuff. And then there's, of course, formal mentorship programs, which I think can be very valuable. You know, for example, I am... I'm a member of Raise Masters, which is Hunter Thompson's uh, mentorship group. So I'm a good friends with Hunter and, and he does a fabulous job with that mentorship group. So uh, I'm really proud to be a part of that. And I think there's, I'm sure there's lots of other good ones out there as well, depending on what your goals are. Great. I think that's really good advice, especially about not necessarily thinking that, you know, a mentor is something, someone that you need to like give something back to, but that just the satisfaction of seeing you succeed, if you do it in a like motivated and timely manner, that that's its own reward. I think you're absolutely right. Last question before we wrap up, what was it like to write a book? I mean, it sounds like you are pretty active in business, like for sure, writing a book must have been a bit of a gear change. So how did that go for you? Yeah, it was. And I, I wrote it, uh, I started it 
right before COVID hit. And then I finished it during the first, you know, couple months of COVID, which was made it a lot easier to do. And, uh, it, it flowed that book flowed for me because it was a topic that I know a lot about, feel very confident talking about. So it really was an easy <laughs> process, which is in contrast to the book I'm writing right now, uh, which is going to be called structuring and raising debt and equity for real estate. And I, you know, I certainly know a lot about that topic as well, but the, the words aren't flowing quite the same, unfortunately. So it's like pulling teeth this time around. That's <laughs> funny. I had the, how different projects can be like that. <laughs> well, Rob, thank you so much for uh, sharing this time with me and with our audience. Uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So to learn more about myself and, and my company, Lone Star Capital, you can go to our website, lscre.com. So lots of resources on there to check out from videos, articles to, to downloads of our underwriting spreadsheet and, the, and our passive investor guide. And if you want to reach out to me directly, the best way to do so is to connect with me on LinkedIn. I post daily on LinkedIn and you can connect with me there. Thank you, Rob, so much for sharing this information with us and taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.